Go ahead and open to Luke. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 4, um, but we're actually going to start at the end of chapter 3. So if you have a device on you, you want to open it up there. If you've got your Bible, just open it up between those two pages. Um, I, and I told you uh, last week and the week before that we'd be meeting every single week in the Gospel of Luke, because that's our series, the Gospel of Luke. We'd be meeting here uh, to sort of learn something new about Jesus, right? Something to be reminded of it, to learn a different aspect of who he was. And, and last week, we covered Jesus as the prophesied one, the, the long-awaited Savior of the world, the, the one whom the Jews have been waiting for. And um, there was a lot of uh, focus put on repenting and believing last week. Personally, I charged you consider whether you were truly repentant, whether you uh, truly believed in the name of Jesus and, and believed in Jesus as this promised one, right, this long-awaited Savior. Um, that was Luke 3. But Luke, he doesn't just end with that account, right, because he's just starting his gospel. Um, he actually moves on into to what we're about to read here in verse 23. So go ahead and get your eyes on that for a minute. Three, ver, chapter 3, verse 23 is where I want you to look just real quick. Get your eyes on it and just see what it is first. Look at it. It's not like your, your average little bit of scripture. It's usually the part that a lot of you probably skip over if you read your Bible at any point throughout the week. It's one that we tend to sort of find boring. They're sort of at the beginning of a lot of the books of the Bible. Um, that is a genealogy, right? A genealogy is a list of uh, whose father was whose father was whose father. And uh, here, particularly in Luke, we see right there that Luke states that Jesus was like 30 years old when he began his ministry, which is what the rest of Luke is about, is his ministry. And Luke goes on to list this entire genealogy from Jesus to Adam, right? The first man created by God. Luke traces Jesus's lineage from father to father to father, all the way back to the first human to exist. And there's a ton of reasons why Luke would have put this in here. Some of them we've talked a little bit about. Some of them are like to prove that Jesus actually existed, right, in Jewish culture. To be able to trace somebody's lineage shows that they were a Jew, that they actually existed, that they had um, a, a place in history and time. Uh, to show that Jesus was a Jew would have been a big deal. Even to show that he was descended from King David himself. Like all these things um, are things Definitely reasons why Luke would include this, and they all tie into what we talked about last week when we talked about Jesus being the prophesied one, right? The, so Luke sort of connects this, um, but the reason that we are going to focus on tonight, the reason that Luke is writing this genealogy, the reason that he's stating how old Jesus was, one of those reasons is to emphasize that Jesus was a man. And not like a male, right? I mean like a man, like mankind. Like Jesus was human. Like Jesus is 100% man, and he is 100% God. And, and if that intrigues you, even just that statement, or you're already beginning to sort of spiral on what all that means, I encourage you just like stick around with us for a few weeks, right? Because tonight we're going to focus on Jesus being 100% man, and in a few weeks, I promise, we'll get to him being 100% God and how that plays out and what that looks like and all the questions. But we'll, we'll get to all that in a few weeks once we've established this week. This week, Luke is showing us that Jesus was a man. He was human. He ate, he slept, he breathed, he walked, all of it. He experienced what we experience it. Uh, we, he experienced what we experience. And um, in chapter 4 here, 
we're going to be going over three implications of what it means that Jesus was a man, right? I told you every week the title of the message would be like Jesus as a, or last week was Jesus as the prophesied one. This is Jesus as a man and three implications to what that means. So let's get our eyes on the text, right? Luke chapter four, I got a bit of scripture I'm going to read, but I want you to follow along if you can. Um, I'll read it out loud. You just follow Luke chapter four, beginning in verse one. It says, in Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kings of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. All right, big passage for us to cover tonight, right? But we're not going to be going through it verse by verse. We're going to be uh, just going through that as a, as a whole and drawing just some of the truths that we can draw out of it, right? I mean, we could spend weeks just on this passage alone, but we're just going to grab a few of the truths, specifically the ones that relate to Jesus's manhood, Jesus being a human. So like I said, three implications for what it meant that Jesus was a man. And here's the first one. Jesus was a man that followed the Holy Spirit. This is um, extremely important, and it is extremely underrated. In fact, um, I think it's something that a lot of us miss when we're reading this passage. How many of you have heard the temptations of Jesus before, right? You knew he was tempted by Satan. So a good chunk of you, at least somewhat familiar, have heard about it. Like, a lot of us have heard that story but not often does it stick out to people that Jesus was being led by the Holy Spirit in those moments. I remember it didn't stick out to me until like a couple years ago. I was uh, going through my New Testament class in seminary. This is like the third New Testament class I've taken, right? But it's the third class. And it's the first time that any professor had ever pointed out to me um, that Luke emphasizes Jesus' following of the Holy Spirit. Like, the fact that there was a spirit he was being led by rather than just him being God choosing to do it. And that's the thing I'm talking about. I'm talking about Jesus's reliance and following the Holy Spirit. Like Luke is super intentional to say that. Look again at verse one there. Verse one says, and Jesus right here, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the spirit in the wilderness. Now I want you to notice the text doesn't say and Jesus, being God, knew to go to the desert in order to be tempted by Satan. The text says that Jesus was led by the Spirit, which is exactly 
the same way that we would describe anything we do that is in the will of God. Like when we as a church, we raise up and we send out missionaries and send them to the nations for God's glory, we say that the Spirit has led them to go to the nations. When we started this college ministry a little over a year ago, like we said, like the Spirit is leading us to start this college ministry. When Pastor Rob and his wife Becky moved from Chicago in 2004, sold everything they had to move here to the Quad Cities to start this church, they were being led by the Spirit. That's how we describe people that are being faithful. That's how we describe humans that are relying on the will of God. That's exactly how we describe our relationship with the Lord. And why do we say it like that? Why do we word it that way? Why do we say like, oh, he's being led by the Spirit to do that? It's because we're emphasizing that we are human and we are relying on God's Spirit to guide us, to protect us, to teach us, to lead us. We are are emphasizing that we are not divine, but that we are following the divine's will. And in Luke, in this passage, Luke is choosing to emphasize Jesus' humanity and reliance on that Holy Spirit. That exact same Spirit that's in any of you that call Jesus your Savior and Lord. That exact same Holy Spirit that we call the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Truth or the Spirit of Christ. You'll see it listed that way all throughout Scripture. Like That's the exact same one that's in you now that Jesus was following. Right? Luke says in chapter 11, which we'll get to in this series, that the Father gives the Holy Spirit to any of those who call on Him. Jesus says in John 14 that the Spirit dwells in all believers forever. And Paul writes, like if you're taking notes and you want to like note some of these verses, like this is a big one. Paul writes in Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Paul says, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. So when you came to know Christ, when you believed in the gospel, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we require possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit resides in you, and it's a down payment of your inheritance. Like, think of it like um, a lot, this is an easy way for me to think of it. Like, you know, contractors sometimes, or when someone's hired to do something, um, they'll oftentimes demand half now and then half later. You guys probably heard of some of those transactions before. It's this idea that, like, there's an agreement to be had, something they're going to achieve at the end, and what you do is you give them half now, to show that it's good, to show that it's coming, to show that you're trustworthy, and oftentimes to give them the ability to complete the task, right? Because they'll use that first half of the money to complete the task oftentimes. Now, it is not the full prize. It is not the full thing, but it is a guarantee that it's coming. And Paul is saying that's what the Holy Spirit is for us. Like your salvation is, is firm and it's assured because you believe in Christ, but it is not complete. Like, our salvation is to be given to us at the end of days. That is something we're heading towards. But until then, God has given us the Holy Spirit now to reside in us as the down payment, to give it to us now because of what's to come later, to have heaven with us now because we're going to be in heaven 
later. Like that is what the Holy Spirit is. It resides in us in that way. And what Luke is emphasizing is that that Spirit of God that dwells in us is exactly what was guiding Jesus as well. As a man being led by the Spirit, not just as God choosing what to do. So the application point to that. Then you're like, okay, cool, Cody. Like you proved the spirit there. What should I do about it? The application's an encouragement that if Jesus was a man that followed the spirit, so should you. That's a simple application. You should too, right? If you are a believer in Christ, if you truly believe in his death and resurrection for your life, you have the Holy Spirit in you, constantly urging you towards holiness and sanctification, constantly speaking to you the things that God wills for your life. And my encouragement is, is don't ignore it. Don't quench it. Listen to it. All right, that's the first implication, but here's the second one. Jesus was a man that fought temptation. Like, if you have an ESV Bible, or actually probably a lot of the Bibles, if you read it there, like the whole subtitle of the editor's notes, the ESV there, calls this whole little section the temptations of Jesus. It probably says it like right above chapter 4 for you. It's, like, it's the main thing of this passage, and that's the thing most pastors talk about when we go through this passage, is that Jesus is being tempted by Satan. And it's not just like the little temptations, right? Like, not, not just the little things that may or may not break the willpower, like Jesus is facing the strongest temptations known to man here. Like the root of all idols that cause us to worship someone else other than God. Like if you were with us last year, you'll remember I did a whole message on the root idols of the heart, right? Power and control and and comfort and, and acceptance. Those things that drive us and cause all of our idols to be what we put in front of us before God. And Jesus... Those were the things he was dealing with. I mean, think about the temptations, right? That first one, food. He was hungry. It says he was hungry. Satan tempts him to turn the stones into food. What is that? It's comfort. To have a full belly. To be satisfied in what you had for the day. Like, Jesus was being tempted with with comfort. What about that second one? Jesus, I mean, this is a cool thing we also look over. Like, Satan shows him all the kingdoms at one point in time. You know what that's saying? It's saying that all the kingdoms that have existed and ever will exist were shown to him in that one moment. And he's offering that to Jesus. Saying like, all this could be yours. What is that? That's power. Jesus is being offered power. And the last one, like, Takes him to the top of the temple, says like, hey, why don't you just jump off here and then make the angels come save you? What is that? It's control. Jesus decides when he lives and when he dies. Jesus decides what's going to happen rather than giving himself over to the Father. Every single time, Satan is trying to pull the God card on Jesus, right? If you're God, then do this. It says that. If you're the son of God, then do this. If you're the son of God, do this. If you're the son of God, do this. And what does Jesus say? He relies on his humanity. His humanity separates himself in that moment from being God, even though he is. And we're going to get to that, I promise you. 
But in this moment, while Satan is trying to get Jesus to play the God card, Jesus is playing the human card. So that matters to us because we all face those temptations, right? Like, I know you do. Whether or not you're willing to be introspective enough to, to face it today, we all face those idols uh, of power and, and control and acceptance. I mean, they, they flare up in all these different ways. Like, um, so this week, I just bought a, a new car. Well, it's new to me, right? So I bought a new-to-me car. I decided to get rid of my uh, 2018 Nissan that only had 50,000 miles on it, right? Like, I, I loved that thing, right? Nice little flashy car for me. Uh, I had never had a car that didn't have a dent in it before. So I was like, this is so nice and it's shiny, right? I decided to get rid of that to get a 2012, so older, Chevy with 89,000 miles on it. So more miles, older car. And, and why did I do it? I did it because I need a bigger vehicle for my family, right? We got a lot of kids. We got five of us right now. And it's just, it's a headache. And now Brittany's working out of the house. Anyway, it's a whole thing. I needed a bigger vehicle, right? And I knew that I knew that. So it, it was a good reason to buy it. And I would say it was the Spirit leading me to do it, right? The Spirit was leading me to be a good steward and a good father and a good husband by making sure I might have given up some of the nicer things that I liked and moving to something that made more sense for, for what I was being called to in my life. Like, I, I would consider that a Spirit-led decision. I mean, it's a bigger vehicle. The payments are actually lower. It's, it, it's a nice thing. But I had... I struggled doing it. I troubled it doing it. Why? Because of these temptations, because of, uh, of these idols. You know, by going to a vehicle with higher miles, I was losing sort of the sense of control of, and comfort knowing that something wasn't going to break down, right? Like I had such a new car before, I sort of rested in the comfort of not having to worry about spending money on it, or at least, you know, as much as I thought I could. Um, I had a sense of control of thinking about not spending all that extra money to, to fix something. Um, having that like really shiny white car gave me a sense of, of, of power, right? That I had come so far from when I bought my first car and that I had finally made something of it and that I finally had achieved some form of, of satisfaction and power in my life that I didn't have before. Like I had to struggle against all those things just to buy a lousy car. And that was just this week, right? That's this week these things came up in my life. And the only reason I tell you this story is because I want you to see that these things will pop up in your life all over the place. In the littlest decisions, in the biggest decisions, it doesn't matter. They're here, and the temptations are real. And Jesus faced these temptations. But why is it so important for me to teach you tonight that Jesus faced these? Like, why does that actually matter? If there is one other verse you really pay attention to tonight, I want it to be this one. This is in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. I'm going I'm to read it, right? The writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, the writer of Hebrews is saying here that Jesus has been tempted just as we have been tempted. Just like an ordinary human, like anybody that's been part of the human race, Jesus has been tempted as we've been tempted. And it says that he didn't sin in doing it. He didn't give in. Like that's the, that's the factual statement, right? That's what I've taught you so far tonight is that Jesus was man. He was tempted. He didn't sin in it. 
But then the writer of Hebrews in 16 drives it home and says, then let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in the time of need. So because Jesus was tempted and didn't sin, you have the ability to draw near to him when you are tempted. You have the ability to head to the throne of grace, aka where he sits, going to him because he gets it. He experienced it, right? He isn't just this big universal God that just made the scenario. He lived the scenario. He went through it alongside you, and he came out victorious. And so when you go through these things, you have somebody you can draw near to and rely on and have confidence to find mercy and find grace. That's why it matters that Jesus was a man and that he was tempted. Because in his humanity, we are able to approach him better. That's why Jesus was a man and fighting temptation matters. And your application point is to draw near to him. Right, if your first one with uh, him being led by the Spirit was, you should also be led by the Spirit, the second one is, if Jesus was a man that was, was tempted and fought temptation and won, you should draw near to him when you face temptation. You should seek him. You should ask for him. You should want him and desire him. All right, that's the second implication. The last one's a bit shorter. Just as important, though. Jesus was a man that relied on God's word. Like, look back at the, look back at the text with me. Just sort of get an overview of that. In, in response to every single one of these temptations, these three temptations, what did Jesus do? Jesus quoted the word of God. What, what we know today as the Old Testament, right? Like, that, that's the word of God. Like, verse 4 right there, Jesus says as it is written, and then quotes it. In verse 8, it says, and Jesus answered him, it is written. And in verse 12, it's, Jesus says, it is said. Three temptations, three scriptural responses. So even when Satan himself tries to use scripture against Jesus, right? Like in that second temptation, Satan tries to use scripture against Jesus because he's like, it says that the angels will come save you. What does Jesus do? Does he resort to logic to fight that? Does he resort to some kind of philosophical mindset to fight that? No. Even scripture itself, Jesus fights with more scripture. Jesus was a man that relied on the word of God. And you have to keep in mind, Jesus is God, right? Jesus is God. He's 100% man and 100% God. So if Jesus is God, why does he need to quote the word of God? Like, technically, isn't everything he says the word of God? I mean, if he's God and he says it, therefore, it's the word of God, right? So what's the point? What's the point of, of quoting God's words if you are God? Couldn't he have just responded with a new command? Couldn't Jesus have just been like, well, I say this. Yeah, he could have, but he didn't. Why? Because Jesus, in this moment of ministry and life, and particularly this passage in the gospel, Jesus is living his humanity. Right? He's a man relying on God's word to get him through difficult times of trial 
and temptation. He's a man that has studied God's word enough to know it, enough to memorize it, and enough to apply it to the situation that he finds himself in. You know, nowadays, what, what do we do? If we want to know the word of God, we sort of get out our phone, Google it, and like, well, I know there's a keyword there, right? So even that Hebrews passage that I just read to you, I was like, okay, I know that there's something about the high priest and temptations. So it's like Hebrews, high priest, temptations, and boom, I found the verse I was looking for, right? Jesus didn't have that. He didn't just roll out a scroll and be like, actually, it says it right here. Like he knew it. He stored it in his heart. And he knew it well enough to be able to just respond to it with a situation. It was immediate for him. So Jesus is that kind of man who relied on God's word. And the application point is also super simple. You should too. So just, just to recap tonight's message, just as we finish here and you think about this and maybe you look over it or listen to it again throughout the week. Luke shows us Jesus' humanity in this part of the gospel, right? He reveals that. Jesus is a man that followed the Spirit. So should you. Jesus was a man that fought temptation, so draw near to him in those times. And Jesus was a man who relied on God's word. You should learn it and love it too. Now, I do love preaching from the word of God, right? Like it's, it's an amazing thing. But I realize sometimes the danger of preaching is that I give you a whole bunch of things to do better, right? We call that morality preaching. That's where I just say, oh, here's a list of things in which you can just be a better person. Um, and you guys could definitely take tonight as that, right? Like, you'd be like, oh, I'll just learn God's word better. Oh, I'll just pray more when I go through temptation, those kind of things. And, and that's not the heart behind it. You can take that if you want. I mean, you could, you could do that. But I just want to drive home to you tonight that um, all these actions that I just told you to do, they mean nothing without a sincere heart to follow Christ. They won't get you anywhere. They're not magic words. It's not some magic, magic formula to life. A sincere heart for Christ, just like we talked about last week, and we'll keep on coming back to it every single week. Sincere repentance and belief in Christ. Centering your life around Christ, right? We've been talking about our three C's here at the college ministry. Like, centered on Christ, committed to discipleship, confident in the word of God. They all need to be together, which means centered on Christ and actually desiring him.